can the Democratic Party figure this stuff out? Yes, but it's going to require them to move in a different policy direction than they're comfortable with. And that's their biggest problem. There's a lot of people out there, consultants, who are saying, oh, the problem with Democrats is they don't invest early enough. They don't organize early enough. They don't understand you have to go door to door. to. Maybe that's a very small marginal part of it. But you have to have a party that matches people's beliefs and values if you're going to connect with them. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And if you've been listening to Politicology for any length of time, you are probably familiar with my friend Mike Madrid. Mike was one of my co-founders on The Lincoln Project, and we have since become very good friends. He's a national political strategist. He's our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics at Politicology. He's a student of history and a veteran of too many political campaigns to count. And he lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. And recently, I was out in California, and Mike and I made some time to visit in person. And it was long overdue and really great to see him. I wanted to share some of that with you. So we sat down at his house in Sacramento and hit record. And in the first half of this conversation, we cover Mike's piece in the Sacramento Bee and the piece that he's working on for the New York Times about Democrats dramatically misunderstanding Latino voting patterns and the trends he's uncovered. We also talk about the lessons Democrats can learn to win more power. And then in the second half, which we'll release next Wednesday, we go a bit broader to look at what these trend lines are telling us about 2024 and even further about the future of politics in America. We also talk about what Steve Bannon has actually achieved and what technology's effect has been and will be on democracy. This is a wide-ranging conversation, and I'm glad to bring it to you. Okay, so you just wrote this piece in the Sacramento Bee Mm -hmm. uh, about what you're seeing in the national demographic landscape as... Uh, as a lot of people seem to be getting the Hispanic shift wrong yeah. or taking away the wrong lessons from, uh, from Hispanic voting patterns. Yeah. And now you're working on a piece for the New York times mm-hmm. along the same lines. Yeah. And before we dive into that, why don't you set the table for the context, and then we can dive into those trends that you're looking at. Yeah, and I'm, I don't want to get into one of those, you know, normal long-winded Mike Madrid setups. <laughs> but, but since you asked, um, you know, look, this is this is this is what I've been watching for my entire career, kind of the development of the Hispanic Latino vote, because mathematically, just looking at the data as a, as a young operative, as a young Mexican American, as a young person in America. I realized 25, 30 years ago that, you know, midway through my career, we would be at this tipping point of this demographic. And I, we've never experienced a plurality of a non-white America before. But you saw this coming a long oh, yeah. time ago, a yeah, long was, time ago. I was doing my uh, thesis work at Georgetown on this in the mid-1990s. Mm. And being from California, it was a little easier to see. Sure, I mean, it was happening here, and you could see it um, happening in, in states like Arizona and even Texas and other places. And I knew that it would be a, a struggle for America. I knew that it would be difficult because it's just, it's, in many ways, this stuff is biological. It's just a loss of identity. It, it It's forcing questions of class. It's in many ways, it's forcing uh, us to reexamine the original sin of, of blackness and slavery in America. 
Um, and, and honestly, I think the growth of the Latino vote, the Latinization of America in many ways has kind of fueled a lot of what is happening with the Black Lives Matter movement because the only way America really knows how to talk about race is in a black and white lens. And so much of, of the academy and so much of media and so much of politics is shaped on the West Coast, on the East Coast, excuse me, where, where that black and white paradigm is, is, is still dominant. Yeah. Or a um, white and non-white paradigm. White, right? Well, it's really black because, because of slavery. Yeah. I mean, it's unavoidable. And we're learning to talk about it as non-white. Um, but that doesn't, that's not just like flipping a switch. It takes a while to get there. And again, we have for decades, for generations, and we fought a civil war over it, and and it's part of the original sin in our founding documents, right, is um, black and white America is this this extreme way of understanding our national identity and um, our, our mistakes and the failed promise of the ideals. And so then when you have these larger immigrant groups, we've struggled with them in the 1800s. You know, you had Poles, Greeks, Jews, you know, there was a big Catholic question when the Irish started coming. And, 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 and a lot of that stuff is deeply ingrained, I think, in generations, largely in the past. Um, but we've never had a non-white mm. majority. Mm-hmm. And that's really questioning a lot of Americans' sense of self. It's really forcing a lot of questions, and and you're seeing this response from a lot of white America that's just really not comfortable with it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it used to be that the word minority mm-hmm. used to mean just a different skin color than white. That's exactly right. Yeah, but actually, all the word minority means is math. It's just math. I, it's that's just what math. I see it it's anyway. Just, <laughs> it, 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 that's what it is, yeah. right? A minority. Yeah. The minority means you are not in the majority. All that it, all it is is you're less than fifty percent. But that word has taken on a different meaning. And to, to drive that point home, you're exactly right. Is in California, which we now call it a minority majority state. We we still know what we're referring to when we say minorities, right. even though it's not a minority anymore. Right. 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 Yeah. It's 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 there's a very direct stratification between. Income and class and region where you live. California, most people don't know this, is one of the most segregated, if not the most segregated states in the union um, because of class. And we have huge economic wealth disparity. We were just talking about this. Yeah. It's it's directly correlates to race and ethnicity. Is we know by zip code basically everything about you. We know if you're white, we know if you're college educated, we know what your lifespan is going to be by zip code because it's so segregated. And that's, a, that's it, it's undeniably a class problem, but it's also undeniably a race and yeah. ethnicity problem. Yeah. And California is much more comfortable with it now. Most of California is, not all of it. But but more, we've recognized uh, that that is a uh, problem. 20 years ago, I think California was going through this transformative change that the rest of the country is just now going through. That's where the anti-immigrant, you know, kind of hysteria came up. This struggle between becoming a not a, a white minority, um, and and the the visceral backlash or the white lash, as it was called, uh, to that to that uh, phenomenon. And I'm not saying California has done it right, but I think it's a preview of what is likely to happen in the rest of the country, with one significant exception, which is what the what the point of the of the of the editorial was, and kind of what I'll be talking about a little bit more nationally, and that is. Latino voters are behaving very differently than um, they have in California, 
And in with full disclosure, when I was writing on this 25 years ago, my prediction was that Latinos would be behaving in California the way they are now nationally. Oh, wow. I was wrong mm. uh, because I'd never anticipated the multi-year sustained anti-immigrant, anti-Hispanic sentiment in the legislature and in the Republican Party and with ballot measures. You mean here in California? Here in California. Right. And that created, frankly, a voting block where most social and political indicators suggested it would not be happening. And it is not happening in, in basically every other state with the exception of Arizona, which has its own story of you know the Joe Arpaios of the world and Governor Jan Brewer and uh, a multi-year history of legislative fights that were both anti-immigrant and anti-Hispanic. Um, and so barring that, what we are seeing is the largest ethnic transformation in America that is beginning to take on and acculturate into the mainstream the way every virtually every other immigrant group in the past has uh, in our country's history, which is very healthy. Yeah. Right. It's, very it, it's good for democracy. Yeah. It's good for the Latino community. Uh, you know, to look at it through just a, it's good. Is it good or bad for the Democratic Party? Is it good or bad for the Republican Party? And we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's very myopic to look at it that yeah, way. Yeah, right. There's a bigger transformation yeah. happening about what it means to be an American. Yeah, that's just one filter to yeah. put on the to put on the landscape. Yeah. So um, I want to stick here in California for just a minute because you mentioned, and and we'll, we're we're going to get to this trend that you have uncovered. But um, you mentioned not just the segregation, but also the wealth divide yes. here. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you also mentioned to me uh, something a little bit earlier, that if California doesn't solve that problem, the country cannot solve that problem. Yeah. Can you explain what you meant by yeah, that? Yeah, you hear a lot, especially in the Democratic Party, for good reason, talk about kind of income inequality and the divide between the rich and the poor. Um, it, is, it is so pronounced in California— it is so significant that if you can't close that gap in California, you can't close it nationally. California is a big state. And the rich here are extremely rich, especially the, the one percenters, right? The Silicon Valley types and a lot of the you know um, innovators that have created this new economy. But we are also um, the poorest nation. And people people know we're, we're, you know that you can understand California is the richest state yeah. in the nation. Yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to grasp that we're also the poorest state in the nation. Say so why? Well, the reason why is because the middle class has basically been gutted as a matter of policy. There is no, there is no middle class that um, has uh, an industry or industries that allow for a living wage, a sustainable wage to, to, to maintain a, media, a middle class quality of life. We are creating jobs, but the jobs that we're creating are service sector jobs. So the way we have with an underclass here, which is rapidly becoming a permanent underclass, is people working in the service economy. The service economy is booming, but it does not produce jobs that allow people to actually support a family or even support themselves. So you've got to work two jobs. You've got to have at least one, maybe a couple of other side hustles simply to pay the rent, yeah. let alone eat you know, and, and pay, the, pay the other bills. So California um, is a very, very great place to live if you meet certain demographic criteria. If you're college educated and if you're white, uh, life is pretty good. If you're neither of those mm -hmm. um, or even one of, not one of those, life is, life is very difficult mm -hmm. demographically. demographically I mean, there's right. obviously exceptions yeah, yeah. to all of that. Sure. Yeah. But by and large, the, the divide is very clear. 
Um, but more to your to your point, the the way we have consciously created this economy, and again, our regulatory environment has basically pushed manufacturing out of California. We're basically saying we don't want it here. We don't want those jobs. Mm. We want a high-tech workforce. We want a, a very educated workforce. We're not, by the way, um, educating our kids <laughs> uh, in a way that meets those jobs. We have to literally import workers, uh, highly educated work- workers from either other states or from other countries to meet the economy that we're building. Um, but people that work with their hands, people that are not uh, college educated, those jobs have basically um, evaporated and along with the middle class. And so we are a state of very wealthy white people, largely, um, increasingly uh, Asian, oftentimes immigrant. That's a lot of that narrative that you hear is people you know have come here, usually highly educated immigrants that have had to come to meet that skilled workforce. But then we are also a... Um, a state um, comprised overwhelmingly uh, in, in the service economy of people who are, are immigrants, who are not college educated, who have very little economic mobility. They're mm-hmm. essentially stuck at the bottom rung of the economic ladder. And so there's no middle class. So there's no middle class. And it starts to look like other yeah. countries yeah. Where, where this is a problem we've always derided. But we, that's what we've created in California. And I'm not going to say that there aren't global forces that have also led to this. But there's no question that our policy frameworks over the past 30 years have exacerbated this trend. So before we get on to the rest of the country, I mm-hmm. want to ask you about that uh, phenomenon, specifically in California. If this is created by the policy framework uh, that California has led statewide, and Democrats have largely been in control of California supermajorities in the legislature, certainly for a long time, democratic leadership throughout the state and most parts of the state. Um, this is the kind of thing that Democrats tend to promise to fix yeah. when they are running, at least for federal office and statewide in other parts of the country. And so I wonder what is the answer or explanation that uh, that Democratic Party leadership would offer for this being the case in California? Why hasn't it been solved here if the value proposition of the Democratic Party is to lift boats from the bottom of the ocean? It's a fantastic question, and it's one that has been very frustrating as a Californian um, because the Democrats really don't have an answer, and they don't need an answer because the Republican Party has so marginalized itself as a competitive force in the state. Um, uh, had a, the former Republican Party chairman used to tell me all the time, you know, California has the largest income inequality gap. It has by far the largest poverty problem in America. It has the worst homeless problem in America. It has the worst housing affordability crisis in America. It has the worst, you know, childhood um, obesity and starvation problem, both signs, both signs of poverty, endemic poverty. And, and and there's no you don't you don't hear the Democratic Party. These problems are getting worse. They're not getting better. And most of it, it's not that they don't care. It's just that I think what they're realizing is that the tools of government alone are not capable of not only solving it, but oftentimes are exacerbating it. And again, I'm not saying um, before all the hate mail comes yeah, in. That's not, not an argument against government. It's not an <laughs> argument against government. It's, it's not even candidly an argument against the, the Democratic Party, although right. I'm, I'm very, very comfortable attacking the Democratic Party <laughs> when I think it's wrong, just as I'm very comfortable attacking the Republican Party when I think that they're wrong. But it is, it is unavoidable. 
to look at a state that is blue, deeply blue as California and say all of these social problems are particularly pronounced here and simply blame it on the weather, as Jerry Brown blamed it on, you know, the homeless problem, which is ridiculous, or blame it on Prop 13 or, or Republican policies from 40 years ago, which is which is what the standard Democratic partisan frame is. Um, there are a lot of policies that just do not work and, or, or have failed. And it is it is remarkable to see how dug in people are about the failures of their own party to do something which is so clearly evident. Huh. Well, we've seen that before. And we have seen it before. <laughs> the, the Republican Party yeah, does that. Absolutely. And, they just, and why Dem- Democrats display the same proclivities. Trickle-down economics is a great example of yeah, that. There's just clear evidence that some of these things don't work. It's okay as long as you're trying to solve problems, which is the real goal. It's not to be right and win and, and hold power, but both both parties do that because that is the job of political parties. It's why I think parties have, have become particularly pernicious at this point in time. But look- That's a different episode. Uh, it's a different episode for a different day. The, the only way you solve both housing and homelessness has to have in some part some dramatic increase in supply. You just, you just have to. Um, there are obviously mental health issues and other endemic poverty problems related to homelessness specifically. But if you're going to get people off of the streets or out of their cars or out of tents, you have to increase supply uh, at, at other levels. Um, and California um, is moving in the exact opposite direction. And so, you know, in many ways, California is a true preview of coming attractions of what is going to happen in the rest of the of the country. Mm. Uh, we're going to talk momentarily mm-hmm. about some of the limitations of that in one very significant way. But by and large, the income inequality problem that we are experiencing in California is a real, real red flag. That is saying you cannot be a an economy that rewards certain industries where people are highly educated, uh, punish industries where those that are are not highly educated have no other recourse uh, and expect things to be okay because they're not okay. California is not. It is not um, a a progressive panacea that should be held up as a place that America should be. It isn't an example that we should be striving for. Not even close. It works very well for white college-educated people. It it works very poorly for everybody else. Mm. And that's not an America that I want to live in. It's not an America that I've been fighting for. It's not an America that, you know, um, I think portends well for democracy. And certainly not something that we should export to the rest of the 49 states. No, no. And and there are lessons here about the failure of certain policies. And... um, and I think that's okay. I think it's healthy to talk about yeah. that yeah. as opposed to saying you're a traitor to the cause yeah. because, um, you know, again, if, if you believe in putting your country over your party, yeah. if you believe in principles yeah. first, yeah. then you should be very comfortable talking about that. It's yeah. when you somehow view that as a threat. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, you're not a real true believer. <laughs> you're not, you know, you're not you're, loyal enough to yeah, this brand. You're an apostate. Then, right. you know, I, and I have no, I have no, um, no appetite to yeah, be engaged in that because it's not, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not productive and it, it, yeah. it's actually counterproductive. Yeah. So you listeners who are, you know, busting out your keyboards right now, fire, <laughs> getting ready to fire off angry 
every tweets and emails. Uh, if that's the game you want to play, we're not really listening. Yeah, these this is about solving problems, and maybe in a different episode at another time, because I can hear some people thinking right now. Well, can you talk about the specific policies that sure. have failed? Can you say well, let's let's save let's that, that because yeah. it's a different conversation that I think we should have. Yeah, we should talk about that. But For sure. But um. But I want to. But I want to now move on from. All right, just California. Yeah. You 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 stumbled upon some very interesting data. Mm-hmm. Maybe one morning when you were eating numbers for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> During my normal numbers crunching over breakfast. And uh, and what did you find? Well, and again, as somebody who's been looking at Latino numbers since the early 1990s, one of the things that I've always had to struggle with as somebody who has been doing research and campaigns and as a practitioner has been sample sizes uh, of Latinos. And when you have very small sample sizes, you can have wildly divergent data points. Um, and so you saw, for example, uh, uh, last week's elections with you know Glenn Youngkin uh, over McAuliffe, the exit polling were saying everything from McAuliffe won thirty one percent of the vote to uh, the and that was the that yeah, was the um, CNN exit polls and if you looked at Fox News polling exit polling it was saying Youngkin got fifty four percent of the vote. That's an extraordinarily wide yeah. disparity. Like that's not even close. I mean, exits are always you know, dicey, and, and exits are dicey because they're designed for a different outcome than trying to trying to be particularly accurate on a certain subgroup. Um, but but but. What I started to do was try to look at why Hispanics seemed to either move toward Republicans in states like Virginia and New Jersey and New York and Texas and Pennsylvania and what I realized was basically everywhere else in the country. But in September, during the California recall, Latinos voted in a very predictable, siloed, partisan fashion. With Democrats, in fact, the, the the performance number for Gavin Newsom during the recall was basically identical to what his elections numbers were in 2018, and those matched almost identically the trend line going back to the mid 1990s for Republican and Democratic candidates. Wow, really That's remarkable. And it's it's remarkable because here's why it, it's it's remarkable because it, it it does mean that there was there was kind of this. Um, hindrance towards kind of a general movement towards um, people. I, I hate to say the word assimilating because it's not entirely accurate, but taking Hispanics in California are not, we're not taking on the characteristics of the overall electorate. They were becoming an ethnic voting block, which was everything that I believe was not going to happen in California or with Latino voters. That is, that is now proving to be the case nationally. But, but the, the question about California is important for a couple of reasons. And, and again, yeah. sorry, sorry about the long yeah, yeah, way yeah. to get into your question, but, great. but the answer really is this. California is an outlier. It is an aberration. We always viewed it as the norm, as the, as the rule. And so Republicans looked at California and it was like, oh my God, we have to stop immigration. We can't allow for the growth in the Hispanic electorate. We need to run against this community to get the white vote out because Hispanics aren't going to vote for us. And just by uh, attrition and birth rates, they're eventually going to kill the Republican Party, hmm. right? Yeah. That's that's truly where there's there a- That's where very, California Republicans were. That's where California Republicans are still, uh, right? Which is why they're such a tiny which minority. Which is why they're such a small and shrinking minority. And this is still the common 
thought amongst national Republicans now. This was not the case pre-Trump. But in the post-Trump era, what they believed was we can build a wall, we can stop this from happening, and most importantly, we can turn out enough white voters yeah. to overcome, to overcome this. this. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we can, but, we can, we can build a dam. We can build a dam and stop the, the hemorrhaging. Uh, Democrats, conversely, were looking at California, and going, "See, all we need to do is 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 win the ballot box by winning it in the you know maternity wards. Yeah, the more kids that happen, yeah, basically, we just need to make sure they all vote. Yeah, demographics is destiny. Yeah. As long as we turn people out, this right. is what's going to happen. We're going to move in this direction. Right. And so the narratives, the national narratives of both parties, has been wrong as we look outside of California. Because there was an assumption embedded in that demographics is destiny. We just need to win them in the maternity war. We just need them to win. The assumption embedded in that is, well, they'll vote for us, of course. That's exactly right. Overwhelmingly. And the 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 um, interesting part about this to me has always been that really what it is is Democrats believe that Hispanics are like black voters. Mm, say or, more. Like in what way? Well, that there's a that there's a naturally um, cohesive monolithic voting block. You will hear that all they the, identify as an aggrieved minority, an aggrieved racial minority, and there are there are some elements to that. But most data that is being put out from very reliable sources, whether it's Pew Research, which is the gold standard, I think of research, especially when it comes to Hispanics, or a Berkeley study that just came out. I mean, hardly the bastion of conservatism is basically saying that most Hispanics identify as a quote unquote typical typical American, or not. Uh, increasingly, the numbers are not Hispanic at all by the second and third generation. There is a social indicator of what we would call acculturation, which is Hispanics increasingly are comfortable with, quote unquote, the mainstream of their identity with, with America, uh, whatever that means. doesn't mean that they're necessarily becoming white, although it can be, or this hybrid that is being constructed in this new era of American history. But something is changing. And most importantly, the real key indicator is it's not distinct between black and white. Black social structures, interracial marriages between black and whites are still very, very low, very low. With Hispanics, it's over 50%. In California, you know, a second or third generation Latino Hispanic is more likely to marry a non-Hispanic than a Hispanic. I mean, that's, a, that's an important sign of social acculturation. And, and as a result, you start to see political voting behavior take on those characteristics. Um, but that's not happening. And, and one of the things that's just occurred to me right now, too, is social mobility is a very important indicator, too, is as you climb out of poverty, the first rungs of ladder as an immigrant into the middle class, your voting behavior starts to change, too. Um, in California, there is very little social mobility. You basically come here as a permanent poor underclass. Uh, and so you're starting to see that voting behavior starts to be stifled, too. Just occurred to me. Uh, and so it's something you need to look at too. Whereas you are starting to see other uh, regions of the country where there is more social mobility, that might be another explanation for what we're seeing, which is a movement towards the Republican Party or declining turnout for the Democratic Party. They may say, I'm not a Republican, but I'm really not a Democrat either. And that's problematic in future elections for the Democratic Party. Right. Okay. So the trend that you've now uncovered yeah. is that. Hispanics in California are different from Hispanics in the rest of the country. At least the voting behavior is. Precisely. Right? And this is, okay, so. Yeah, and let me tell you why that's so important. Yeah. It's so important because the size of the Hispanic community in California is huge. It's, it's, it's most Hispanics in uh, America um, live either in California or, or Arizona. 
Um, it's a little bit of a stretch. It's about 7.9 million Hispanic eligible voters in California. Um, um, it's about 5.2 in Texas, 3.1 in Florida. And then it's, you know, you start looking at the New Yorks and, and, and all those numbers. But, but basically, uh, California is the, is the elephant in the room. And so when you're looking at it, when you do a poll, for example, of Hispanics in America, you weight those numbers towards California because it's where geographically Uh, the largest sizes are. And so in many ways, the behaviors- When you do a national poll. When you do a national poll to say, here's where Hispanics voted for Joe Biden or Donald Trump, it's weighted towards California. Now, California is a blue state and the Hispanic vote, I would argue, has very little weight in a national election because California has very little weight in a national election. It's a blue state. The electoral colleges are already in the bank. Move over. But when two-thirds of the voters, and that's not exactly the number, but but uh, the majority of the votes are in California for the Hispanic sample, it's skewing the impact of the Hispanic vote. It's, it's dramatically overrepresented in California, which is a state that is not a gauge of where Hispanic voters are having an impact in the election. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Okay. But so, there's also, I know, I'm, I'm, I am I want to make sure we we cover this part, but yep. also uh, Hispanic doesn't mean the same thing in every part of part. the country, yeah, right? So right. there are Puerto Ricans in, in Florida. There are different, there are different nationality groups and nationalities. That, right. Yeah. So can you speak yeah, to that a little me, bit? There's a little bit of an overemphasis on this, but it is an important distinction, right? I hear a lot of this. People will say, you know, there's a lot of Nicaraguans or there's Venezuelans, there's Cubans in Miami day, there's Puerto Ricans up in New York and in New Jersey. Uh, all of that is, is largely, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. Right. But, but the variances, for example, in the Cuban American vote, Cuban American vote is only 6% of the vote in, in Florida. Uh, in fact, the non-Cuban vote is as big as the Cuban vote, Hispanic. The non-Cuban Hispanic vote is as big as the Cuban Hispanic vote. So Cubans are dramatically overrepresented in the influence of what they actually have, not only in elections, because of their, you know, they're in Miami-Dade and in Florida, which is a is a swing state, but it's dramatically overrepresented in our media, the influence of the Got Cuban it. vote. And I don't mean to be disparaging no, to but the it, Cuban I, brothers it, and sisters, but it's it's just really overblown. I just want to make sure we cover it because I can hear people saying, well, but you're not accounting for the differences and, and they may not understand exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. So go ahead. And, but continue. it is also important to understand that with only two exceptions, and I'm, I'm speaking to just immigrant groups right now, because that's where you're really starting to see growth in like Virginia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, is these are immigrant workers that are going to find blue collar work, non-college educated work. It's not just California more where that doesn't really exist unless it's a service sector job. A lot of emigres and immigration has declined considerably over the last five, six, eight, 10 years. But where that does exist, a lot of these folks are working outside of the Southwest. They're now in the Northeast, now in the central Atlantic states, they're in the Great Lakes region. But this is the important point is immigrants with, with two notable exceptions always vote with the Democratic Party during the first generation. Hmm. They have always voted that hmm. way with two notable exceptions, the Cubans and the Vietnamese. Because of where they came from. Because they're fleeing anti-communism. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they would vote with the Republican Party. <laughs> right. Okay. Now, there may be other, some other small niche exceptions, but largely they were fleeing repressive regimes. They were political emigres. Those that are economic immigrants, people come and look for, 
overwhelmingly the history of this country has been they vote with the Democrats, and then over time, second and third generation, that dissipates until it blends to take on the characteristics of the overall electorate. Again, this was kind of what my, my thesis work at Georgetown was 25, 30 years ago, is that, that Mexican-Americans, specifically Latinos, generally would take on those same characteristics. It did not happen in California because of the politicization. It is now happening nationally. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And so if you take the California example out because it's so big, what you see is a big, big shift towards the Republican Party. It's not small. It's the extremely partisan, pro-democratic, Hispanic vote, which is 60% of the Hispanic vote in the country in California, skewing the numbers and making it look far more liberal, progressive, democratic than it actually is. And in fact, if you take out that number, that sample, we're probably not that far from parity between the two parties, which is really significant. It's really significant. It means the problem that the Democratic Party has, and I do characterize it that way, um, is, is much bigger than, than, than we think. Um, the Republican Party, you know, look, the truth of the matter is I've been, I've been working in Republican politics with the Latino community for 30 years. They have never done a good job. Of Latino outreach, the Republican Party, the Republican no, they Party. never have. I mean, look at the look at the autopsy report, the, yeah, the they, growth and opportunity report after twenty twelve. Yeah, right? and, they, and they've they, never cared about no, it. No, they've never. Really, it's always been it's always been uh, lip you know lip service, to complete lip yeah. service. Yeah. And and most most of the time they were candid with me about that, saying, "Look, <laughs> we're really more interested in the white suburban women vote, and the more we are pro Latino or pro immigrant, it takes the better the, we look to them. It takes that's, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. The better we look to the suburban white women. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. is we we look less angry. We look less right. mean. We look less anti-immigrant. So let's do this Latino outreach thing. Let's put kind of a minority minority face on it. And the white women in the suburbs won't be as scared of us as they are on social issues. We'll look, we'll look, you know, the compassionate conservative image. Yeah, it was pandering. It's all complete pandering and, and imagery. Um, so so I'm not saying that the Republicans have figured this out. I don't think that they have. But what I'm saying is that this is happening largely on its own, despite the two parties' strengths and weaknesses. Now, can the can the Democratic Party figure this stuff out? Yes, but it's going to require them to move in a different policy direction than they're comfortable with, and that's their biggest problem, um, and it is a significant problem. There's a lot of people out there, consultants, who are saying, oh, the problem with Democrats is they don't invest early enough. They don't organize early enough. They don't understand you have to go door to door to – maybe that's a, a very small marginal part of it, but you have to have a party – that matches people's beliefs and values if you're going to connect with them. Yeah, you have, a, have to have a brand that resonates with them. It's got to, and people, they're smart enough to know that. So to think it's, oh, if you just invested us or hired more consultants in this area or, or organized more, you know, neighborhood programs and things would make a difference. Yes, on the margins. But there's plenty of data to suggest that the real problem here is a policy problem is the Democrats are increasingly a party that is having trouble with working class Americans. Because of you know a lot of the a lot of the issues that they they champion, they are viewed as the enemy of a lot of industries that provide for an eighty to one hundred thousand dollar a year job working in energy, working in the construction trades, working in in all of these industries, and that's problematic for the party's national brand. So uh, I think we should be clear about one thing, just briefly for our listeners or maybe new listeners who are wondering 
you know, what are you guys talking about? I thought you were, you know, helping Democrats get elected. Well, we did <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> we, we do. yes, I, you know, for my part, I want to see Democrats win more power, especially right now because yeah. of what we are facing in the, the threat Republican of authoritarianism. They are yeah. absolutely an existential threat to this country. Uh, and so, so, you know, part of this conversation is I hope there are lessons here that the Democrats can learn mm-hmm. about how to win more power. Um, and so, uh, what I'm wondering about this trend is whether you think there are there whether you think this is anti-partisanship on the part of Hispanics who are moving away from the Democratic Party are they being repelled by the Democratic Party or are they being attracted by the Republican Party is it a little bit of both or do we not have any data to 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 know for sure we do have some data the data would suggest that it is clearly a little bit of both the degree to which it is one side or the other, it, you know, the jury's kind of out on that. Um, but there is no question that the the heavy emphasis on the traditional minority, quote unquote, minority identity politics of the Democratic Party, which is getting stronger and more visceral and more intense, is not helpful. That is clear, clear as day. And that's and it's not helpful because. Hispanics, as you mentioned earlier, are not identifying outside of California. Hispanics largely are not identifying as an aggrieved minority. One hundred percent, which is which is sort of the 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 way the rhetoric is 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 dominated on the left entirely. Okay. Yeah, almost entirely. Okay, right. And so, and again, I I believe that this comes back to the white progressives' understanding of race in America which is through a black model, a black civil rights model. It's understandable. I mean, that's our history. But Hispanics are much more of an aspirational immigrant group mm. that is, is much more compelled uh, by the messaging that moved Italians, Greeks, Poles a uh, uh, hundred years ago after Ellis Island by saying there's opportunity here. These are the industries that, you know, you may not have gone to college, but if you work really hard, you can buy a home, you can send your kids to school and college and save up and have a retirement and go on vacation and live the American dream. That's not possible in California. It's just not. And and because the industries that are consciously created in a state like this are adverse to, to the workforce. And so um, as you see states like Texas and you see states like other areas that are openly saying, we're welcoming these well, industries, come on yeah. come on in. These, these industries are um, increasingly um, upwardly mobile, upwardly mobile. And that, I mean, it, it's, it's really that simple. It's, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> it's right? the economy. And stupid. that's what voters are, are, are responding yeah. to. What I hear a lot is, I don't know how a, a people could vote for a party that hates them or puts kids in cages or wants to build a wall. Or, you know, a president who called, you know, Judge Curiel, uh, you know, unable to be a good juror, a judge because he's of Mexican descent. All true. Uh, It's one of the main reasons why I'm so anti-Trump, right? I I get it. But what I will also say this is somebody who's worked with, with, with working class voters, working class Latinos for so long, none of this is a shock to them. They're very aware. They've seen this show for a long time. It's been on. They live this (laughs) show. It's like, oh, you're telling me that a white Republican candidate's racist? There's a shocker, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like, oh, okay, well, you know, I still have to pay the rent. Yeah. That's already baked in. I take that as as an assumed. And it's also not just a partisan thing. Like, and I I say this again, and a lot of my good friends on the left are kind of 
you know, taken aback by this for a moment, but, but then you breathe it in. If you believe racism is systemic, then it's systemic. It's a system. And the Democratic Party is as much or more of the system than the Republican Party. In fact, the Democratic Party has the White House and both houses of Congress, wow. right? It is the system. It's systemic. So it's not, uh, clearly it's more pronounced, it's more crass, it's more ugly, it's an overt strategy in the Republican Party. I'm not saying that. And don't, please don't give me the, you know, you're trying to equate one or the other. I'm not. I, you, people know where I've been in this fight. Okay, I've proved it. But my point is the same, is to think that it's not endemic in the Democratic Party is crazy. It's one of the, one of the reasons why the Democratic Party is having such difficulty right now with the Hispanic vote is because it views non-white progressives as an aggrieved racial minority. It views the Hispanic voter as a, a, a black voter. And they're not, not even close. And that's not, a, you know, that's just, that's, 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 that is just a, a misgiving of the Democratic Party elites, donors, and strategists. The, the, the illiberal far left. Yeah. 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 And so the, this, this emphasis, while I completely understand it and agree with a lot of, 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 the, of the, the attempt to undo the injustices through the, 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 um, through the understanding of race has really taken on a far more extreme position in the Democratic Party that is repelling not just white suburbanites. It's it's repelling Hispanic voters. Latinx is a good example of this. Yeah, and the whole Latinx concept is I just you know I I, I hate the term. Um, you mentioned and, that yeah you, it, during the Lincoln Project, yeah. you gave your staff a pep talk about that that specific term. Yeah. Famous. Well, I don't I don't think the public knows this, but yeah. you want to, you want to tell that story? Well, I just you know I was working with a lot of young Democratic staffers, yeah. and most of them white, and they were trying to be sensitive, and, and that was kind of a word I forbade. And <laughs> the reason is because there's nobody in the Latino community, nobody in the Hispanic community. Community who uses that? This is a vernacular that is academic. It's a very you know strong PC crowd, which you know, there's nothing wrong with political correctness unless it's taken too far, right? Um, but it, it's it, it, when you speak to people, especially in politics, you need to speak to them where they're at, and that's not where 97 percent most polling. Pew research polling, uh, you know, there's, there's a bevy of information showing that, you know, 95 plus percent of Hispanic Latinos do not use the term Latinx. It's, 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 a, it's a very small niche group. And they're, I understand why they're trying to do it, but it's just so terribly misguided. It turns people off. Uh, I have a, a probably stronger, more visceral reaction to it because I understand that it's politically motivated. And it, I, I don't think, I understand the need to, and desire to be inclusive. And I think that's virtuous. I think that at a certain point, it's no longer inclusive. It's it's it, it's becoming an imposition and trying to force. Well, when you're trying to win votes, it becomes alienating well, because what you're trying to do is, is, is express to people that you understand them, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah, it's kind of like when Bob Dole went up there, you know, and gave his speech and was trying to talk about the internet and explain the internet. And you just realize this 80-year-old guy has no idea. Wait, wait, you're wait. Not, you're the not internet, connecting with the I remember voters. this. The internet is not a truck you can just dump things on. 
There's a great video on YouTube of all of this mashup. The internet is not, or was that Ted Stevens? That might've been Ted, Ted Stevens, Stevens, Alaska. And, yeah. It was Ted Stevens, Alaska. The internet is not a truck you can just dump things on. Yeah, it's this, it's, <laughs> it's this attempt to kind of say I'm with you, but yeah. I'm so far removed yeah. from your experience and I don't understand you so much. Hello, my fellow kids. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> what, yes, exactly. Steve Buscemi. Yeah, I'm just, I'm not yeah. of you. Yeah. And that's what Latinx yeah. really does say. Uh, I mean, I understand that it's promulgated, especially by Latino and Hispanic academics, but the mm-hmm. truth of the matter is, I think that's just really kind of self-serving for what they're trying to accomplish in the academy. And not helpful in a political context no, where you're terrible. trying to win power. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah, it's terrible in a, in a yeah. political context. That's somebody You saw this on Twitter a lot. People were saying, you know, uh, Youngkin won the Latino vote. McAuliffe won the Latinx vote. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? The Democrats yeah. are winning the Latinx vote, but it's yeah. 5% but it's of, this, of the community. And yeah. they're, and they're yeah. losing the Latino vote by doing that. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.